Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I am a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. We have a couple of announcements. We are seeking volunteers for fun gatherings. Would you like to gather with other UU Wausau congregants to socialize and connect? Of course you would. <laughs> we are seeking volunteers for our second Friday Nighters events. The next event is December 8th from 6 to 8 p.m. and then every second Friday night of each month going forward. Hosts are responsible for opening their home or gathering at church and providing beverages. If you'd like to host, please contact the church office administrator. If you need assistance with hosting, please reach out. So save the date for a fun, happy hour discussion. On December 1, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., join UU Wausau's staff to thank the Board of Trustees, both outgoing and incoming. You'll learn a bit about how things get done at the church and listen to board member testimonials. Please be sure you RSVP to the church administrator by November 15th to allow us to, to provide plenty of wine, non-alcoholic drinks, cheese, fruit, <coughs> and other yummies to all. And don't forget the annual meeting. As required by the board bylaws, an annual meeting of the congregation will be held Sunday, December 3rd at 11.45 after this service. The meeting will be held in the sanctuary. As we begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessings to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Hey, how are you? Okay, that's enough. You can only be happy for so long. Um, dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting. It's number 454 in your gray hymnal. I'll give you a couple seconds to find it. In our time of grief, we light a flame of sharing, the flame of ongoing life. In this time when we search for understanding and serenity in the face of loss, we light this sign of our quest for truth and community. Please join us to sing hymn number 159. Stand as you are able.
This morning I'd like to share with you a story titled Sam's No Fault Day. It began when Sam woke up late for school. Sam's baby sister Rose had been playing in Sam's room the night before and turned off Sam's alarm. And by the time Sam's mom woke him, he was very late to school. When Sam got downstairs, his puppy Rory jumped up to greet him, but Rory's paws were muddy, and he got muddy paw prints all over Sam's favorite sweatshirt. Sam didn't have time to change, so he just threw the sweatshirt into the laundry room. In his rush, Sam put his, in his book bag the pile of books that was to go to the public library, not the school library. And on the way out the door, Sam grabbed Mommy's lunch, not his own. Because he was running late, he missed walking with his best friends, Manny and Maya, and to play the game they made up, Zombie Walk. Sam was the current high scorer, but Manny was getting close. And then at school, the day kept getting worse. Sally got sick at the start of circle time, and Mr. Johnson had to take her down to the school nurse. And he forgot all about the fact that it was Sam's turn to be a star student for the day. At morning recess, he found out Manny set the all-time high score for zombie walk. When he got to lunch, he realized he had mommy's, and it was liverwurst. And he had to have hot lunch instead, which was tuna melt, which this writer has been assured is the worst school lunch. <laughs> because he didn't have his library books, he didn't get to check out the copy of Dogman, 20,000 Fleas Under the Sea, that he had been waiting a month to read. And Sam was in such a bad mood on the walk home, Manny and Maya didn't want to play with him. It was easy to say Sam was having a pretty awful day. When Sam got home, he dropped his bag with a loud thud and slammed the front door with a huff. Whoa, what's that all about, Mom asked from around the corner in the kitchen. Ugh, Sam yelled, stomping in. First, Rose made me late to school by turning off my alarm. Then Mr. Johnson forgot I was supposed to be star student today. The librarian wouldn't let me check out Dogman. It was gross liverwurst or tuna melt for school lunch. Rory got mud all over my favorite sweatshirt, and I was, didn't have time to change, so I was freezing all day long. Manny and Maya didn't wait for me to walk to school, so I missed playing zombie walk. And Manny beat my high score, and they didn't even want to play with me on my way home. It was like everyone was trying to make this the worst day ever. Well, that certainly sounds like it wasn't a good day, Mom said. But I'm wondering what you were doing in all of this. What? Today was not my fault, Sam yelled back. I'm not saying it's your fault, but you told me a lot about what other people were doing today, but not what you did, Mom replied. But it wasn't my fault Rose told, turned off my alarm, and it wasn't my fault that Mr. Johnson skipped being star student for me today, Sam explained. You're right, but didn't Rory's paws get wet because you washed your bike in the spot next to the garage that gets muddy and Mommy and I told you not to do that? Well, I guess, Sam admitted. And you're right, it isn't your fault that Rose was in your room. But didn't Mommy and I remind you to check your alarm last night? Because we know how much Rose loves to play with the buttons on your alarm. Well, yeah, Sam answered. And Mommy texted that she had your PB&J and that you must have had her liverwurst, said Mom. Yeah, so I had to eat the school's yucky tuna melt instead, Sam said, making a face. Well, that sounds better than Mommy's liver's worse, but not good. I'm sure you didn't mean to grab Mommy's lunch, said Mom. No, I didn't mean to, Sam replied. It sounds like you just made a simple mistake. And Mr. Johnson usually doesn't forget important things like star student. So I wonder what happened there, asked Mom. Well, Sally got sick at circle time, and Mr. Johnson had to take her down to the nurse. And when he got back, we were already on to math, and he said he forgot. Oh, that sounds like Mr. Johnson just made a simple mistake, too. Yeah, he apologized and told me I could be star student twice next month to make up for it, Sam responded with a smile. Well, that was really nice of him. Poor Sally, though. That must have been really embarrassing. I hope she's feeling better, Mom said. It was really nice of him. I could tell he felt bad, and I was pretty grumpy when Sally, you know, got sick. That probably didn't help. I'll talk to her when she comes back to school, Sam replied. I think that's a good idea. And what about the librarian? She was holding Dogman for you. Why weren't you able to check it out, Mom asked. 
Oh yeah, I kind of grabbed my public library books and not my school books. And since I didn't have my books to return, she couldn't check out Dogman to me because I was at my limit and the system wouldn't let her, Sam admitted. That makes sense. And what about Maya and Manny, Mom asked. Why didn't they want to play with you? I was mad they didn't wait for me and Manny got to beat my score, so they said they didn't want to play with me if I was going to be mad at them for it, said Sam. You were running pretty late today, Mom said. If they would have waited for you, wouldn't have them made them late too, she asked. Well, I guess they didn't have to be late because I was, Sam admitted. I bet Manny was really excited about getting the high score. Mm-hmm, Sam mumbled. I wonder how it felt that his best friend wasn't happy for him, but instead was mad at him, Mom wondered aloud. Probably not great, Sam realized. So it sounds like today was not a good day for lots of reasons, but not because other people wanted to make it a bad day for you, but because of some mistakes. Some yours, some others, and some things just happen, said Mom. Yeah, I think I need to say sorry to some people. Is it okay if I go over and try to catch Manny and Maya before they leave for soccer practice, Sam asked. I think that's another good idea. Just make sure you're back in time to help with dinner, Mom said. On the way out, Sam hugged Rose and gave Rory an extra long scratch behind the ears. And as, excuse me, as he was running out the door, Sam heard his mom tease, you'll want to be on time for dinner. We're having liverwurst. <laughs> and that is our story for today. This morning, our preschoolers through sixth graders and any older youth who'd like to come down and help with a special project for our next week's bread communion are invited to come downstairs for our children's chapel. They also are welcome to remain in worship with their families. And I invite everyone to bless those remaining in service and those heading to RE with our children's song, The Words Are Printed in Your Order of Service. I'd like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I'll invite you to start by putting your feet flat on the ground, uncross your legs. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, now's a good time to close them. Become aware of your body in this room. And first let us take a deep and full breath into our chest and slow out. Now move your attention downwards. Take another deep full breath into your stomach and slow out. Let us pray. Oh God, we watch the pain that builds from isolation. We watch it grow stronger in the face of so much self-satisfaction. We know of so many people who cannot see hope because their pain is more than they can bear. We struggle with the reality of poverty and violence and children left alone to find their own way in the world. And so we ask for wisdom. Help us not give up or give in. Help us overlook little things that don't matter and praise the little things that should. And we ask for a blessing, the blessing of laughter in a community supper the blessing of healing hands on broken bodies, the blessing of patient teachers with anxious students, 
the blessing of truth in a sea of lies. Spirit of life, we bring our prayers to you, our prayers for those who mourn, for those who are alone, and for those who don't know the comfort of community. We raise our prayers in faith that there is more love somewhere, and in faith that we might be the hands and hearts who give wisdom and blessing, and when the time comes, we'll be wise enough to let others do the blessing for us. Let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for we walk in love. Insert it in your bulletin. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. You can place a gift in the basket as it passes by. You can also stop by our website, <coughs> uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support.
morning's reading is a poem of sorts by Khalil Gibran entitled Set a Blade of Grass. The poet writes, Set a blade of grass to an autumn leaf. You make such a noise falling, you scatter all my winter dreams, said the indignant leaf, low-born and low-dwelling, songless, peevish thing. You live not in the upper air, and you cannot tell the sound of singing. Then the autumn leaf lay down upon the earth and slept, and when spring came, she waked up, and she was a blade of grass. And when it was autumn and her winter sleep was upon her and above her through all the air, the leaves were falling. She muttered to herself, oh, these autumn leaves, they make such noise. They scatter all my winter dreams. There it ends our reading. Well, yet another indictment of modern life occurred last month when the very important long-anticipated report from the American Pet Products Association released its 2023-2024 Pet Owner Survey showing that more than half 
of U.S. dog owners say they buy, quote, calming products for their pooches, like pheromone spray and lycra jumpsuits and CBD-infused treats. In another survey, 83% of American veterinarians reported prescribing dogs, quote, anxiety meds and antidepressants. The increase in canines diagnosed with mental illness has led to the creation of a new kind of care, unique at this point to America only, called veterinary behaviorists. America now has at least 85 veterinary behaviorists, professionals people take their dogs to for mental health care. Now, the number of people seeking mental health care for dogs, according to the report, quote, has exploded in recent years. And if you go on Google, you'll find that Google search data shows that in the past 10 years, searches for dog anxiety has tripled. Now, before I move on, let me say that the destigmatization of human mental health in recent decades is wonderful. I say that personally as someone who's had struggles with mental health. And so I suppose the very same thing should be said for a dog's mental health. But I have suspicions. I can't help but wonder if anxious adults are projecting their issues onto their furry housemates. Am I alone in wondering this? No, that's right. So to answer this question, you might consider that 85% of owners say their dogs have behavior problems. Now, I find this statistic to be incredible. Eight and a half out of every 10 dogs is a problem dog that you see. But then you look at the things people list as problems. I'll tell you a couple of those things. Things like, quote, a tennis ball fetish, end quote. Another problem, barking. These are what people list as problems their dogs have. Now, I am not a veterinarian, I don't think, and I've had dogs for more than a quarter of my life, but I don't ever remember having or knowing a dog that didn't have a tennis ball fetish. Some of you probably have a tennis ball fetish, I bet. And it's facts like this that led the Atlantic's Rose Horowitz to ask, quote, is the dog anxiety crisis real? Or is it a product of owners' anxiety-riddled psyches? Because, guess what, folks? Dogs can't tell us how they're feeling. So we'll probably never know. But this is my favorite part of the essay. She says, but both explanations are depressing. Because either humans are stressing out dogs so much that they truly need prescriptions, or owners are putting dogs on unnecessary psychoactive drugs to address annoying but normal dog habits, end quote. So I went down the rabbit hole of veterinary behaviorists for you, so you don't have to waste your Sunday afternoon reading reports. I read a couple of testimonials from people who take their dogs to these veterinary behaviorists, and I noticed something. In both cases, the treatment seemed to impact who the most? The person. One lady said after her first dog therapy session, quote, honestly, it just felt cathartic. The biggest breakthrough came, get this, when the behaviorist turned from the dog to the struggling dog owner and offered these words, quote, it's not you, forgive yourself. In another case, a different behaviorist inspired a breakthrough when she told the owner, quote, you didn't know any better. You are not your mistakes. In both cases, what had happened? These owners had hit rock bottom. They failed at owning a dog. Or so they thought. Something that is supposed to be fun, right? And then, when they took their failure to a veterinary behaviorist, reportedly for the dogs, what did they hear? They heard, 
you are not your failures. Your future isn't doomed. Forgive yourself. I hope they also said, your dog is just a dog. Like, I really hope that that came up at some point. After all, we are talking about animals that sniff butts to say hi. Barking and going nuts for tennis balls is normal. Here's my advice. Take them on a walk, rub their belly, give them a bone, and you're like 93% sure to just be fine in the long run. But this story reminded me how there is freedom, or something like freedom, in hitting rock bottom. In seeing that I can't save or rescue my dog from her dogginess, but more than that, I can't save my parents, right? I can't save my sisters, or their spouses, or their marriages. I can't save their careers. I can't save this church. And I find it comforting to admit that there's a lot that I don't know, and there's a lot that I don't control. And even though hitting rock bottom hurts, and sometimes it's embarrassing, and recovery takes a long time, and it almost never looks like I want it to, I also know that at least I'm on the road to recovery. And I can only speak for myself, but I would rather be in this state than another state I know really well, which is the state of trying to fix the unfixable, the state of all that negative self-talk in my mind, all the hangers-on from my past, trying to get people who don't like me to like me, trying to get respect from people who aren't respectful, trying to convince myself that I'm better than others. And so, with all of this in mind, I want us to consider a new idea that's causing quite a stir if you read nerdy publications like me. Now, the, the idea that we're gonna discuss comes from this new book entitled Determined, Life Without Free Will by the behavioral scientist Robert Sapolsky. Any of you read, heard about this book? It was just covered in the New Yorker last week. Anyways, check it out. So Sapolsky and others in his field, they say this, free will doesn't exist. Are you all excited by this idea? We're going to explore it. So what they say is they say that everything you do, everything about you is predetermined. Everything we do, he says, can be tracked along this causal chain all the way back to your brain just a few milliseconds before you act. Everything you do is determined by your early experiences, and even before that, it's encoded deep down in those neurotransmitters and deep down in your genes. If you just so happen to be a person with a little more grit than others, it's nothing more than having been raised in situations that taxed your willpower. Everything comes down to luck. If you've got a few million bucks, it's not because you're smart, it's not because you worked hard, it's luck. If your marriage succeeds or fails, luck. If your kids become successful adults, luck. If you got the job or the degree or whatever, you are nothing special. What if I just ended the sermon right there and sent you home? Anyways, <laughs> because here's the rub. Anyone born to your parents with your genes raised in the same context would end up just like you. Now, skeptics argue that if people start believing free will is a lie, human beings will become something like moral monsters. But Sapolsky actually arrives at the opposite conclusion. He says that by accepting we're all just pre-programmed, it gives us even more reason to live with profound forgiveness and understanding. Because he says this, our lack of free will actually shows us, quote, the absurdity of hating any person for anything they've done. Now I'm intrigued by this idea mostly because it levels the playing field. If it's true, and I'm not saying it is true, but if it's true, it makes it a lot harder for all those upper middle class people to judge the hovering the poverty line people for not having enough money to be able to buy their food at Triggs, or whatever it's called now, rather than getting their groceries for free from a pantry. It also makes it a whole lot harder to justify one of humankind's favorite pastimes, self-righteousness. 
No more can you smugly judge your neighbor when you find out that their son just got his third DWI. No more is gossiping going to go all that well whenever someone at church tells you that they're still paying restitution for a bunch of shoplifting they once did. Because according to this, we're all just a bunch of flesh sacks with a past in need of forgiveness and second chances. Now, I am functionally okay with all of these conclusions. To me, whenever I read this book, it's sort of like secular Presbyterianism, right? Total depravity, the tulip, anybody former Presbyterians here? I'm okay with that. I could preach that, that's fine. Now, don't get me wrong. After I read this book, I was sort of thinking maybe there are people out there and maybe you're one of them who fires on all of your cylinders. Maybe your photograph needs to be printed next to the word success in Webster's Dictionary. Maybe you poop sunshine. Maybe you enjoy checking yourself out in the mirror. Maybe you think your spouse is the lucky one in the relationship. But I have news for you. After almost 40 years of life, after more than a decade in ministry, after a decade and a half of marriage to a very beautiful lady who also just so happens to be a professional educator who's sitting right there, who comes home and tells me about life amongst teachers and parents and kids, and it's this. It said, oftentimes the people who seem to have it most, quote, together, when you pull them aside in a private room and you ask, they will tell you, my life is falling apart in this area and that area and so on. But we like hiding that. We like it so much that in fact we've created an industry for it. And so I've been thumbing this book, I haven't finished it, but I've been thumbing this new book by Rena Raphael called The Gospel of Wellness. And in it, she tracks that as organized religion has retreated from everyday life, the thing that's rushed in is wellness and the wellness industry that is trying to fill the void. It's providing, this is a quote, it's providing belonging, identity, meaning, community. These are the things people used to find in the neighborhood church or synagogue, end quote. Now I could spend 10 sermons on that sentence alone, but that's not what I want us to focus on. I want us to ask why wellness is so appealing to millions of Americans. Now you can form your own conclusions about this, but here's Raphael's answer. Because it offers the illusion of control. Quote, if you work hard enough and you buy the right things, you will be saved from the disease of aging and anything bad happening to you, end quote. I think we all know that this is modern day snake oil. But every year, Americans spend billions with a B, billions of dollars on self-care. And you would think that by now, after billions of dollars that we spend on health care or on um, wellness, and I actually read that the average American over the course of their life will spend $142,000 on self-care. And so you'd think with all that money that we'd be spending on wellness, that we would be living to 125 years old by now, right? But instead, what does research show us? It shows us that in fact, life expectancy is going down. Every year, more and more Americans are dying from avoidable and treatable conditions when you compare them to other high-income nations. Moreover, more than one in five US adults have a diagnosed mental illness. Even our dogs are depressed. And, Recent research suggests that U.S. workers in all sectors are among the most stressed in the world. As Raphael writes in the book, quote, we have become the self-care nation, though arguably the one that lacks the fundamentals of well-being, end quote. Now, one reviewer of this book on the back, what she says is that over the course of her life, she spent thousands of dollars on self-care, often out of desperation. But I love this part. She said that the greatest benefit she got from all the money that she spent on self-care was when she lost faith in everything the industry promises. The moment she hit rock bottom 
and saw that the fix many of us need often lies beyond ourselves. Often the fix we need comes from above, from a higher power, or it comes from friends, from churches that stock pantries when you can't afford food, from people who cook and serve free meals, from cops who arrest you for drunk driving, for therapists who take Medicaid. What's hidden behind self-righteousness and assuming you can go it alone is the fundamental truth that we don't understand a lot. Over the course of our lives, we learn that people can be very, very disappointing. They break our hearts. Very sweet people get bullied. We'll be called to live through losses. And at some point, we will realize that we have wasted whole portions of our lives obsessing over work or pleasing people or dieting. We'll read about or witness firsthand the extent of human deprivation and barbarity. But alongside all that, we'll also get to witness transformation. People finding out who they were born to be before magazines warp their minds and commercials ruin their understanding of what beauty is or before their parents shame them into people-pleasing robots. Too often we treat mistakes as if they're moral failures. And we do this to others. And we also do this to ourselves. And too often, rather than search for a sliver of common humanity, we warp our own and other people's lives into cautionary tales, into fodder for gossip, into us versus them. Rather than recognizing our own intense need for love and connection, rather than admitting how bound up by shame we are, now, there's this ancient story told like 2,500 years ago about two guys that show up to the same church and they walk into the same sanctuary together. Now, one guy walks into the sanctuary and he thinks to himself, he says, thank you, Lord, I am not like those people. Thank you, Lord, I am not like those addicts and those Democrats and those Republicans and those fat people and those lazy people and those people waiting in line for methadone across from the old mall. Meanwhile, the, same guy who walked, the other guy who walked into the same church is standing next to him, and he looks up to the top of the church and he says, Lord, have mercy. Now, the point of the story is that we're both of those people. We're equal parts jerk and we're equal parts sweetie pie. But many of us tend to lean a little more jerk more often than we'd like to admit. You've done things and you've said things you're not proud of. You've done things you want to take back, and me too. Here's my advice. Forgive yourself. As the late theologian Henry Nouwen said, quote, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and we need to be forgiven every day, every hour. And so, forgive your dog its tennis ball obsession. Forgive your imposter syndrome. Forgive your kid for growing up into their own person. Forgive your friend for doing things her own way. Forgive yourself for not asking help. Forgive yourself for thinking you're the smartest in the room. Forgive yourself for crying wolf, for not standing up when you should have, for all those times you fell in love with the wrong person. Forgive yourself for taking more than you should. And then forgive yourself for not forgiving yourself. All human lives are formed from a tangle of mistakes and pain. Everyone in this room is gonna mess up later today, and then you're gonna do it again tomorrow. It's in your DNA. But forgiveness shapes us into something less harsh and more pleasant. A people more likely to offer love than demand it. People who seek peace more than revenge. People who have learned how good it is to stop hating something. People who've learned that bones and lives can heal. People who've seen that love can pull people back up to their feet. 
people who have learned that you're not your mistakes. With that, let us rise and sing our closing hymn in the Teal Book, number 1018, Come and Go With Me to That Land. still standing, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free, the hope that never dies, and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. <laughs>